We have been in the book of James. James is a book that is very much a do-or-dead book, and there's some theology behind that title. James is, uh, is one who goes right after things, and he's talking about this fact. He is saying there is a kind of faith that appears alive, but it's dead. There's another kind of faith that is alive, and it acts. And rather than thinking that it's do uh, or die, like you have to keep trying to sustain this faith and keep working to keep pleasing God, to keep working and mustering up energy. Instead, it's saying this, there is a saving faith that is given to you. And when that happens, there is a change that comes over you. Now, you don't have to raise your hand or stand up, but if you are an only child in here this morning, I'll tell you this, you are at a disadvantage for what we're going to talk about this morning. We are talking about the idea of blame. And if you are an only child... Here's what I can only imagine. I wasn't an only child, but here's what I can imagine. When mom comes to you and says, who left the sticky popsicle stick on the computer? You're like, dad? You know, I mean, it doesn't, it just doesn't quite work as well. Or you point to the dog, but that never flies for you. I mean, he ate the homework last time, but he's not leaving sticky popsicle sticks around. So pretty soon you just kind of, you know, you're like, it's me. I mean, obviously I'm the only kid here who would do that. Now, if you have brothers and sisters, what do you do? You you find the closest one and you blame them. Or you find the one that's not in the room and you blame them. But you're skilled at this early on. You begin to figure out some of these things. The other thing about blame that you learn early on is this. When you see a younger sibling, I had both older and younger. I'm a middle child. And when I saw my younger brother, something frustrating would happen. I would watch him toss blame all over the place. And when you're in a fit of rage or angry or, or, or upset that something went on and you watch that getting thrown around, you just learn about blame from, from some things. So I'm just going to say, those of you who are only children, just, just take better notes, listen more carefully, because some of the rest of us already have some of this down. Now, the reality is probably those of us with siblings have to unlearn by God's grace some things about blame. This week and next week, if you look in James... Uh, the verses that we're covering this week talk about blame. And next week, we're going to be looking at blessing. And in, in reality, these two kind of go hand in hand. And what happens is, both of these are ways that we can wrong God. Let me explain. James is warning us this morning about not blaming God when we sin. That's one place we go with blame, is we run to God with that, and we place the blame at his feet. Now, catch this, though. With blessing, we can also rob God and wrong God. Instead of giving credit to where credit is due, we can either ignore God for blessing in our life, which is so often the case. We see this in the people of Israel. They fall into turmoil. What do they do? They humble themselves. They repent. They put on sackcloth. They show their great remorse. And they cry out to God in their pain and their trials. And then when God blesses and gives them things, what do they do? They turn from God. What do they also do? They also give credit to false idols. Here's what we do. We tend to, when we're blessed... Not only do we ignore God and not be the ones that turn back to give thanks for the many good blessings that went on in our life, but instead we'll sometimes give it, give credit to karma or good fortune or our own great wisdom or that really, really nice person that made this happen. And we can rob God of that. This week and next week in some ways are going to be taken together, blame and blessing. And if you only come for this week, you're getting a little bit the darker side of things, a little bit more the, you know, the, the blame side. Next week we get to talk about the blessing and the goodness of God. Now, providentially, we are speaking about birth, raising, and maturing offspring on Mother's Day, which is really pleasant. That's just where the text landed. Now, before you get too excited, the moms, don't think Hallmark. Think a little bit more like Tim Burton. 
Because the child and the raising and the result of this is that uh, sin, death, and evil are conceived, born, and full grown. So it's a little bit dark and twisted rather than a Hallmark card. Unless you guys feel left out, there's a fishing and hunting reference, okay? It's a little early Father's Day present. Both guys and gals get to be covered in this passage. Now, who's to blame? This picture probably stirs something in you, especially if you had any kind of abuse growing up or you have abuse going on right now. When you see someone with a pointy finger just shoved in your face, it just stirs something in us, doesn't it? And what this passage is going to show us is this, that God, whose image we're created out of, he has things stirred in him when the finger is pointed at him. Who's to blame um, conjures up some things. The first is this, that temptations um, and, and ways to sin are common to everyone. We learn this in 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, as in mankind. So not only is the temptation universal, but so is our response to it. Not just blaming someone or something for the temptation itself, but even blaming people or something for succumbing to the temptation. And we're masters at this. This began in the garden. Adam blames Eve. This woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. What does Eve do? Blames, right? Eve blames Satan and says this, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now catch this. The spouse and the devil made me do it cards have been played ever since. Throughout the dawn of time. That it's the devil that made me do it, it's my spouse, and on and on it goes. There's a whole deck of cards that we could probably pull out, but those two are really common. If you think about it a little bit more clearly, it's actually worse for Adam, because he actually blames God in his sentence. He's not really blaming the woman, although he tries to put some of it on her, but he says this, it's this woman you gave to me. Right? God gives provision to the man in a wife, And who is he attacking? He's attacking God for the provision that he gave to her. So here it is, laid out plain as day, what it looks like to blame God. Now this is quite the art, right? Um, One of the joys of growing up is getting to hide Easter eggs. I love to hide Easter eggs, and usually my brothers and I are out there hiding um, Easter eggs. And I thought of it this way, that that the ways that we develop ideas on how to lay blame places is a little bit like the adults getting to hide the Easter egg for the kids. We take our Easter eggs, we have a basket full of things, and we say, we have to put these somewhere, so we begin to place them in places away from us, right? So imagine if that's your guilt, if that's the fault, if that's the temptation, and we start to do that. And we can even do this really subtly. We can come up and put our arms around someone and say, hey, don't blame yourself. Let me do that for you. And you slip an egg, you just right in the pocket, you know? And then over here, we'll go by this tree and kind of hide it here. And no one will suspect if it's, if it's over here, away from me. Here are some of the ENTs, words ending in ENT that we blame. Government, management, the establishment, parents. There's probably other ENT words out there, but do you see this? There's just a pattern of it's got to be someone else's fault. I don't see many news stories. I don't see many blog articles where it's just people saying, I'm going to own my stuff and let me talk to you about it and lay it out there. But I see a whole bunch the other way. And then, of course, in the pinnacle of that is to blame God. Let's read James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. We're just looking at a few verses today. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now this passage, in a few short verses, he covers some really huge things. The nature of God, the nature of evil, the nature of man, the nature of lust. These are, these are huge teachings that are foundational to life. Maybe moms do know, on some level, a different depth of fault-finding and blame, just because of the fact that they are around children a lot and, and see things. I don't know if you like the family circus, but this was a cartoon I read growing up. And this is one of the famous ones. Uh, Dad says this, all right, who's kicking the table? They're there at family dinner table. And the children respond, not me, I don't know, not me, and nobody. And underneath, our little ghosts named those things kicking the table, right? And I don't know if you have a not me that lives at your house, but we have several of those around. And I think it's one per child, I think, because we have roughly seven that are around our home. And, uh, and, they, and they are there and getting the blame for all kinds of things. Here's what James is doing. James this morning is giving a sharp rebuke to all who would blame God as the source and or means of their temptation, of their fault. Now next week, he's going to talk about blessings. And God is both the source and the means of all that is good. And if you read in verse 14, what you see is this, or verse 16, excuse me. There's a little thought that links the blame and the blessing, and it's this sentence. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived links both blame and blessing. I would venture to guess that every one of us in this room have missed the mark on this one. I think that we've been deceived because it's rampant. Meaning this, we've shifted the blame elsewhere and we've misjudged where the goodness of God came from and placed it elsewhere and chased after it from another source. I wonder how much hurt and shame and bitterness is a result of these things. How many years of wandering? We sing a song that says God returns our wasted years running from blame, shifting the blame, and chasing after sources of goodness that aren't really the source. Let me hit on a couple of teaching points that this brings up. The first is this, the nature of God. God is not and cannot be tempted by evil. One of the things you'll find in the scripture is that God is clearly, passionately interested in his namesake, in the majesty of his name, in the reputation of his name. And here in a passage that's talking about not blaming God, what we see is we see the character of God at stake, the majesty and glory of God at stake. It's on display by this. He is over and above all that entices and controls us. We could say with Paul, can't we? The very things that we want to do, we see noble uh, things that we want to do, we know the good that we ought to do, and we can't do it. We don't consistently do it. And the very thing that we hate in ourselves, we don't want to do it, we're striving not to do it, what do we do? We end up doing those very things. Now, there are seasons where we can overcome that. There are seasons where certain things lay dormant. But Paul, at the end of Romans 7, says this, Who will save me from this wretched man that I am? Paul struggled with a universal struggle. The noble things we want to do, we can't. The things that we don't want to do tend to control us and empower us. Here's the character of God on display. He is over and above that. 
He has power over that such that he's not controlled by the things that control us. He doesn't lack the power. Listen to Psalm. By the way, the Psalms is a, is a songbook for our life. And if you're curious as to how do I pray and ascribe glory to God without it just getting repetitive, God, you're great. And not let that just become something. Read the Psalms. The Psalms talk all about his character and his works. Listen to Psalm 14. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 21. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Now here's what we do when we blame God. Blaming someone else, whether it's God or another, is a vain attempt to build us up by putting someone else down. Taking something that is rightfully ours and trying to give that to someone else is a vain attempt to build us up. It's also a vain exercise in bringing God down. It's bearing false witness to who God is and what he's like by blaming God, that he would tempt his children with evil. But it's also vain in that it doesn't solve our our root problem. So, first of all, is the the nature of God that we see in there. Secondly, the source of temptation. He says it quite plainly that it's from within you. Now, are outside influences real? Yes. Can circumstances assist in stirring things up? Absolutely. But sin is born in us. Here's what much of us did for much of our life. Spent a lot of time building a defense that placed it elsewhere and that said, and that tried to justify it or tried to push it away. But the, the verdict of scripture is in, uh, dead in our trespasses and sin is what Ephesians says. Sold under sin, says Romans 7. We are in captivity to the law of sin and by nature children of, of wrath. Now this is something that Christians through the ages have called the doctrine of depravity. Let me tell you this right now. Not a popular one. It is just not a popular message to say that, that we're sinful creatures. It just isn't. I don't know that it ever has, but it's been more widely accepted in different ages and in different places today than right now and right here in this day and age. But here it is in a nutshell that all human beings are sinners and we sin, catch this, both by our nature and by our choice. The reason that's important is this. It's not that some get all the choices right and somehow navigate through the sin field. It's actually in our nature to go the wrong way and to be a rebel. Now we have kind of this cowboy theme going on with James because in the Old West, I didn't live back then, but there just seemed to be kind of a cut and dry, black and white things and sometimes cowboys can say things in an, in an earthy way, in a simple way, take a lot of complex truth and put it into something you can grab onto and hang your hat on. And I think Jesus would have bought into that. That's how Jesus taught, didn't he? He taught the common folk. He didn't teach up here in, in scholarly universities. So here is our cowboys dumb for the morning. Now, for those of you who are new, you're wondering what that is. It's on the screen. It's cowboy wisdom. Here it is. The biggest troublemaker you'll probably have to deal with watches you shave his face in the mirror every morning. There it is. So if you don't, yeah, if you don't shave, thank you, Cassie. Go with it. The first step to being rescued from our sin is seeing 
our sin. Admitting our sin. Turning from our sin. Not sin in general, not the sin of the people, but our sin. And it's by God's grace alone that you will have your eyes opened to your sin. That you will be enabled to even repent and admit and turn from your sin. It's a grace in your life from God if you see your own sin. When the Holy Spirit reveals our wretchedness, when the Holy Spirit reveals that's on you, that's coming out of you, that action is not anyone else's but yours, it's a grace in our life. Here's why. He is not leading us to despair with that revelation. He wants to lead us to holiness. And the very thing that we think is our undoing that we have sin and we can't be in relationship with the Holy God, so we're going to hide it and we're going to try and work our way to being good is actually the key to our relationship. It's the starting point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, right? For there's the kingdom of heaven. Why is that true? Because those who think they're already righteous, those who've covered it up with rationalization, they don't need grace. They don't need a Savior. They've already got it handled. So blessed are the poor in spirit opens the door for us to walk that way. In verse 13, when it says, let no one say when he's being tempted, there's, there's a nuance in the Greek there that says this, let no one say to himself. You may say that to other people, but don't we most often speak to ourselves with that kind of thing? Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. What that's called is rationalization. And we know how to rationalize almost as good as we know how to hide, blame, Easter eggs. Now, let's move on. The next one is this, the nature of lust. Each person, when he is tempted, or each person is tempted, verse 14, that shows the personal and universal effect of sin. It's each one. It's not a family. It's not your nation. It's not a group of people. It's each one. And then he goes into kind of this fishing, hunting motif of lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, some of you are, are fishermen and fisherwomen, I guess, uh, and hunters, and you understand this, and you think about this, and as you're fishing, you're wondering, what are the fish biting on? And so you adjust your technique to find out, what are the fish going to come out of their safety for? And it's so fun to go fishing and, and to find the right thing, and to start catching fish. Well, think about it from a fish's point of view for a second, okay? There's something about the sight and the scent, and the movement of that little thing that you're putting in front of it, that all caution goes to the wind, they think in their brain, they're like, it's so shiny, I can't help myself. And they come out of their place of hiding, and they bite on and go for it, not coming to their senses until it's too late, right? And they're being yanked on a little reverse, you know, skydive where they're flying up in the air and they're going, what just happened to me? Some of those same sentiments are what you hear in human relations, okay? Can't help themselves. Throw caution to the wind. Go for it. And then only realize too late, oh my goodness, look what I've done. Those are the very same things that happen to us. Now here's what's interesting. When we look at a fishing lure, we go... That's just not that attractive. That's just not that appealing. I'm not, a, I'm not, that's not tempting. What's your problem? You're not a fish, okay? 
That's the problem. There are some sins that when you see someone strung out on a drug that you've never been tempted with, you go, what is your deal? What is your problem? Don't you see that's terrible for you? That's a giant hook in your mouth. I can't handle a canker sore, much less a piece of metal in my mouth. And then you move on to someone else's sin, and then someone else's sin, and then someone else's sin. Every time you see someone ensnared in a sin, a heart of compassion ought to well up in you because you know what it's like to be hooked. You do. You know what it's like to be ensnared in a sin. It's just that some sins are really public and you can't hide it very well. As a youth pastor, one of the sad things was people who were youth who were led to despair. And youth who were led to despair sometimes, um, sometimes led to cutting. This was big in the early 90s. I'm not sure if it started earlier than that, but it got really big in the 90s. If you were a cutter, then you had marks to bear of your sin. It was public a little bit. It was right there for, for people to see. Now, fortunately, that acted as a great cry for help and kind of a great billboard to say, this kid needs extra attention. This kid's crying out for something. We need to come around as a community and support this kid. Sometimes I think, oh, that all sins would be public like that. I wonder how we would treat one another in this room if we could look with eyes of compassion and see, wow, that person struggles with a sin. That's the seventh commandment. I don't struggle with that one, but I got numbers two and three down pat. I understand what it is to be hooked. And all of a sudden we have a heart of compassion that comes around that person and says, brother, Sister, man, let me walk with you through this. Let me love you through this. I know what that's like. And we support one another with that. Here's my question for you. When was the last time you were lured and you lost? I don't know what that was for you, but I have a hunch we don't have to strain our minds to go back and think too hard on that one. There was a time recently, perhaps, that you were lured and you've lost. And maybe right now even you're feeling the bitter effects of having a hook in your mouth and fighting against an unseen line that's dragging you in. Now he moves from hunting motif to the childbirth picture. He says in verse 15, Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. You see the progression. Desire, sin, death. A profound idea that is simple, true, but we forget this often is this. Every evil deed that has ever been done was born in the mind. It was born with a thought. It started with an idea. That's where it was conceived. That's why Romans 12 says that by the renewing of our minds, we're to be transformed from our natural state because the battle for the mind is so incredibly important. Now, this death that's being talked of is is this condition that we find ourselves in the moment that we sin. It's a condition that we are in. Kind of like terminal cancer that someone might have growing in their body right now that we may discover next week. It's there. Apart from intervention, it will lead to certain death. But right now, we look like the picture of health, right? And even as you begin treatment on it and battling it, there are good weeks and bad weeks with it. But do you ever not have that terminal disease that is going to lead in death? No, it's there. It will show its effects gradually over time, perhaps, but it's there. And that's the spiritual condition of death. And oftentimes, like children, we think this, we're getting away with it. 
We're cheating this wrath to come that's going to be against sin. Where is it? I don't see it. I remember I've told, shared this with you before, but being a, a broke college student, studying the Bible, and watching the strip club owners from across the street getting wealthy and checking their many, many, many accounts, showing me pictures of their yacht they just purchased. What they were doing is they were thumbing their nose at God and saying, man, I'm living my life. Where's that wrath to come? And the effects of that weren't seen right away. In fact, it looked like we were on opposite trajectories if you were to look at it in a snapshot. But it's there. It leads to death. Sin always leads to death. Here's what Jesus made clear on the Sermon on the Mount. That even the thought before the wicked act is damnable. And I use that word quite intentionally. He comes along and says this, that if you look at a woman to lust for her, you've already what? Committed adultery in your heart. And he goes on to, to actually describe much of the law, and he's, and he's describing thoughts before actions. That we can rebel in our minds, we can sin with our minds, and sure as anything, that is going to lead to death. And that your hands may commit you to sin, your eyes may commit you to sin, Guns may help assist you to sin, but it's in your mind. It's in the thought. Once again, I plead with you, go back to what Paul says. Who will save me from this wretched man that I am? I can't get inside there and take that away. Let me move on. Lastly, um, he talks about the nature of truth. With this whole idea of not being deceived, he's actually telling us to think rightly. If there's an instruction here, it's think rightly on this. And I don't think I need to convince you that there's deception going on with any number of things. And part of why we come to God's word and submit to God's word is say, God, give me clear understanding on this. Help me to think about things clearly and properly. We talked about trials a couple of weeks where it said this, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's verse 2 of James. Since we've been there a few weeks ago, some bombs have gone off in the lives of our family here at church. Giant ones. Giant trials. I don't know if your prayers change when you read the scriptures, but here's been my prayer for assorted people in this room right now. is God, I don't know that I'm even praying for you to yank them out of the trial, rescue them from the trial, but, but here's my prayer. God, would you allow them to find your joy in the midst of this trial? Would you allow this trial to have its full effect? We trust that you are the good shepherd. And that if you're allowing this to happen, you won't sustain it. You won't let it go on longer than they can bear. Would you help my friends to take it one single day at a time? Because tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. So just not get ahead of ourselves. We just sang this beautiful song about following. God, if you've stayed here in this valley, help them stay there with you and not run from it. We need right thinking in our trials, don't we? Right thinking produces the endurance that we need, the perseverance that God desires in all his children to sustain to the end of the age and to receive the crown of life. So he's strengthening us. He's He's molding us into His image. We also need to think rightly in temptation. Right thinking leads to freedom and to healing and to salvation. 
And if we think rightly about blame, if we think rightly about temptation, we won't add to our troubles. Now, what difference does it make, you might be asking, if God tempts us or allows us to be tempted? Two different ideas. We're clearly instructed in James, do not blame God. God doesn't tempt and cannot be tempted by evil. I already alluded to one reason that's there, and that is God's character and name. But I think there's a second reason, and I think it would help us to kind of think about a good earthly father. You take someone who you think is a good earthly father. That may have been your own dad, or you may have to, you may have to think of someone else. But you think of a good earthly father. Now think of two things. A good earthly father will not seduce his child with evil trying to get him to fail. If you saw that, your brain wouldn't go, what a good dad. And I've got to remember to get him a card and some tools on Father's Day. You just don't go there. You look at a dad who's trying to seduce his son or daughter to evil, and you think that's wicked. However, a good dad will allow his son or his daughter to be placed in situations that are difficult. He will place them in school and on teams and in organizations where they're going to be forced to make moral decisions, where they're going to be forced to endure a bad teacher here and again, where they're going to be uh, faced with injustice against them. And they have to figure it out, all in the safety net of you while you're they're in your home, but do you see the difference? One is, one is tempting the child, the other one is allowing that to go on. Now, where the metaphor breaks down is us as dads. We don't have all power and all knowledge, and we're not there with them all the time. Think about the fact that God does. And so God sees all of that and is able to step in. God allows trials knowing that they produce endurance, but won't ever lure you into evil. Now, going back to who's to blame, I think it's paramount that we get this truth down and, and, and understand it. Because it's a real starting point in a lot of ways. But I don't know that it's all that helpful for the daily battle. Let me explain what I mean. So far this morning, we've got this. Don't blame God. Your sin leads to death and is born in you. And don't be deceived about that. Now, you could walk out of here saying, thanks for the help. Like, I'm struggling with temptation. I'm struggling to overcome this. That's all true. But where do I go from here? I had two friends of mine that were, um, that were uh, their family had a boat. And we were allowed to take the family ski boat out when, my, when the older of the two brothers was a senior in high school. We drive down to Calero. We get into the boat. They're both great guys, but they personify the surfer image. They both were surfers. And um, let's just say they were forgetful. They didn't have blonde hair, but they could have. Let's put it that way, Okay. <laughs> They get in the boat, we all climb in, me and my friend, and this is a huge deal. This is, this is, we get to do the boat by ourselves. Dad always came with us, cool guy, nice guy, but he's entrusting his sons this time. We get, we get not probably 500 yards offshore, and we all realize something's desperately wrong. Because, um, low riders are cool when you're cruising, but when you're in a ski boat, being a low rider's bad, okay? <laughs> And as we're driving along, we're realizing we're getting lower and lower in the water, such that we're, we're now, the water's kind of right up on the edge. And here's what ensued. What ensued was this. One brother pointing the finger at the other brother. Who put the plug in? You were supposed to put the plug in. I wasn't supposed to put the plug in. You were supposed to... Okay, now, here's where we're at. I bring this up because of this. In that moment, what's most helpful... 
Get the plug in! Right? I mean, we, there is blame. There is truth in the matter. We can figure that out later. Right now, turn the boat around and get the plug in. Now, we did get the plug in, and we, we had the bilge pump pump water for the next hour or so, and we, we got all the water out of the boat. So we didn't sink. But here's what I feel like. I feel like as I was looking at this text, I thought, boy, you know, these books weren't written. James didn't write this to take this three verses at a time. So here's what I want. I want to leave us this morning with saying this. If you are there, you feel your boat sinking, and you're saying, that's fantastic that we understand the blame now, but you need help in the daily battle. You need, you need help right now. I want, to just, I want to just offer you some things. Here's number one. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it begins right here. It begins right here. Personal responsibility for sin and a personal response to Jesus' command, follow me. It's that simple. Personal responsibility for sin and a personal response to follow Jesus. Now, if you were to see, uh, if you were to be reading your scriptures and you were to see instructions for God's children, which we see this all through the scriptures, but I just picked one that I think um, is indicative of some of the things that we can read in the scriptures and, um, and it can stir some sort of emotional response in us, okay? So you become a Christian, you're following Jesus, he is reshaping you into his image. He's lopping off things that were the old self and you're walking with him and you're finding encouragement in that. And then you come along and you read a passage like Colossians 3 verse 12. It says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and... Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, as if that wasn't enough, he tacks this on. Almost like this. Oh, and be thankful. If I were to just list this out, here are the two responses that I think are, are, are possible. I think there's probably others. But one is this. One is to buckle down and try harder. And week after week, you come in here and you see a glowing picture of what a Christian is supposed to be and these things that we're supposed to do. Immediately born in me, when I read that, is this. Man, every single one of those has been a struggle this week. Every one of them. I could go the Pharisee route and say, I've done all of those, I think, this week. But in my heart of hearts, I feel a sick stomach going, man, those are a struggle. And if you're not a thankful person, that very last one kills you. Oh, and be thankful in the midst of all this. So that's one. Try harder. Memorize some principles. Strive. And then when you fail, kind of sweep it under the rug. Don't talk about it. Certainly don't ask for prayer at your men's group or women's group or community group. I'm sure God will overlook that one. And we just work harder at it. We work harder at it. And what begins to happen is we lose touch with what's even real. We're not being honest with our sin, that's for sure. Here's a second approach that I, would, that I would put out to you. And this is the approach 
that the Scriptures teach is to depend wholly on the power of the Spirit that is at work in you. The Bible makes it clear. You did not do anything to be born physically, nor to be born again. It is wholly a grace of God to see your sin and to respond to your sin and to follow Jesus. So we lean on the perfect life that Christ lived. Therefore, it looks like this. I can forgive today because I know how much Jesus has forgiven me. I can initiate with an enemy or a person who's hurt me or a person who's wronged me because Jesus left His throne and initiated love with me while I was still His enemy. I can withstand temptation today because Jesus lived the perfect life and credits it to me. So the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me. Therefore, I can. Here are a few helps for the daily battle. One is to train your mind. Romans 6.11 says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know the best time to do this? Before you're tempted. What if at the start of the day tomorrow you woke up and just said this, Jesus today by faith I take that I am dead to sin, I'm dead to the old life that had me bound, and I'm alive to you because of Jesus Christ today. What if that informed your day? Such that the old triggers, the things that tend to spin you off, whatever it is, whatever little slice of the Ten Commandments you're really, really good at, you say, wow, today I have a choice. I'm dead to that. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus today. That is where you begin to experience the power and freedom and joy. Here's number two is to escape. Many situations simply call for us to run. 1 Corinthians 10.13, I already quoted, but it says this. No temptation. This is either a promise that's true or false. Claim this promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Isn't it different going into a situation where you've been beaten down before, you've been enslaved before, and you walk into it confident that God is faithful, and God will provide a way of escape for us in our sin? Some of you have remarkable stories on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis of saying, man, let me share with you, group, the way of escape that God provided for me in my temptation this week. And the body comes around and celebrates that, that say, God loved you, son, enough. God loved you, daughter, enough to be providing these ways of escape. Now, the true rebel in his heart doesn't want to look for the way of escape, just wants to have his or her own way. And we all do that. Oh, that we would look for the escape and run to it. Thirdly is this, when you fail, and the life of a Christian is an ongoing life of repentance, not this gradual up and to the right trend of perfection. Is God forming us such that 10 years from now, I want to look and live differently than now? Yeah, He is. But it tends to be a little bit like this, isn't it? where we can, we can see the trend that God's working on us, 
But if we're not living a life of repentance, if we're not living a life of confession, then I believe we're beginning to harden a heart and put on a show that keeps us from God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the other help in the daily battle is this. Confess and receive that righteousness that God gives to us. I want to close with this thought. We've been learning so much in James about this fact, that things aren't always what they appear. Our circumstances aren't always what they appear. Our trials aren't what they appear. Even the title of rich and poor from, from last week just aren't what they appear all the time. We learned this week just the idea that we can be deceived by this. And we need to think rightly. And we need to ask God for wisdom to see things clearly. We are being remade into the image of Jesus. Listen to Romans 8. And I want to say this by way of introduction for a prayer that I want to read for you. It says this, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear with your temptation, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. My last question for you this morning is this. Who or what are you blaming right now for the sin, for the trials, for the temptation that you're enduring? And what I know is that every one of us has those things going on. So who's getting the blame? Is it other people? Is it circumstances? Is it Satan? Is it God? We're prone to vagueness with some, some of these things. There's a tool that I want to show you this morning called the diamond prayer. And rather than leave things in kind of a vague sort of way of, of praying that my sin and my struggles would be helped, it has a way of naming and kind of forcing you to fill in the blanks and do some things. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. This was written by a woman who struggled for years with some things. And it goes like this. One word of a seemingly impossible situation that you faced. Could be a trial, could be a temptation or a struggle. For her, it was infertility. Two words, adjectives that describe the situation. Hopeless and sad. Three words about you or an action that you took. Cried, prayed, and hoped. Four words about what you wanted to happen. Baby, love, arms, a life filled. And then God pours out His Spirit. The same Spirit we just read about that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that is going to fill and, and raise to life our own mortal flesh. Here it is. Four words about God or an action that He took making the turning point for the better. Adoption, number one. Number two, 
number three. Three words about you or an action that you took. The names of your kids, Nathan and Laura and Will. Two words, adjectives that describe the situation, how you felt about the situation. Overjoyed and complete. And then one word that is the opposite of the word that was used at the top. And it's mine. Let's pray. God, you know intimately how sin and this life has grabbed people by the throat in here this week and this month. And God, you care more intimately and more thoroughly than any of us can even fathom or think about. And God, my prayer this morning is that You would help us by Your grace to stop hunting for places to lay the blame. To stop running around shooing it elsewhere. We recognize there's evil in this world. And God, I pray that by the wisdom You give by Your Spirit, that You would help us as a community to help one another think rightly about things. God, I pray that we would openly lay before You our own failings and sin. And God, the instinct that we all feel to cover up and to hide, thinking it will keep us from shame, thinking it will free us from guilt, that as it does just the opposite, God, would You give us eyes to see that and lay bare before You Help us to trust You, God, to put utter confidence in You, that we can confide in You all that You know already and love us in spite of. God, as we sing right now, I pray that even in this place, You would stir in us a heart of confession that would lay down these places of pride and these places that that we tend to cling to. God, we need Your grace and Your healing in this room this morning. We hope and we long and we're sure that you can and will and do come through for us. In Jesus' name, amen.